Father, we pray today that you would increase our faith, for faith comes by hearing, hearing the word. We pray that your spirit would have freedom to search our hearts, to instruct us in the way. Help us on our Christian journey and use this time uh, profitably, we pray, in our lives and hearts and relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's be seated together. We are now in the final months of the ministry of Jesus. He is now heading towards Jerusalem. And during this time, he has been ministering to the multitudes. We see uh, many, especially through these recent chapters, how he is speaking to to the crowds. But all the way through, there are two distinct groups that he is always and often addressing. And they are both very instructive for us. One group is the Pharisees, and the other group is his disciples. And we find instruction in both of these uh, relationships and all that he has to say. So we read, he said to his disciples, and then later in the passage, and then he said to the Pharisees, and then he said to the disciples, and then he was at the house of a certain Pharisee, etc. It goes back and forth. So we read read in the beginning of the last chapter, he was teaching his disciples. And he was teaching them to be careful in their decisions relating to life and also to heaven, the stewardship of life and our decisions relating to this life and particularly looking to the next relating to money, etc. And it, it ends with him rebuking the Pharisees. If you remember, they were called by him the lovers of money, and they had trouble with his parable and his teaching. So he then told them the story of the rich man. Do you remember last week? And that incredibly sobering passage on the consequences of rejecting the Lord. And Moses and the prophets are not hearing, but in their proud hearts, they did not repent. They did not turn to the Lord. So here we are now in chapter 17, and we read the first words, and he said to his disciples. So now he's speaking to his disciples again, and he's going to speak to them about the all-important subject of relationships in, in life and in ministry as Christians, how we relate to one another. And he says, it's impossible that no offenses should come. Now, you may read this in different translations. It's slightly different. Uh, For example, the NIV says, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. The ESV says, temptations to sin are sure to come. The New American Standard, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. Literally, in the Greek here, it says, it cannot but come. They will come. Offenses will come. Temptations to sin will come. Stumbling blocks will come. Are you ready? It's a a sure thing. The word here, offenses, is scandalon. It's where we get our word scandal from. It means to cause to fall, to be a stumbling block or a stumbling stone or an offense, to be a trap or a snare. So there are things in life that will come that could cause you and I to stumble and maybe even fall away 
from our church, from our faith, we may lose our way and end up uh, in a distant place. The world is full of stumbling blocks. And I hope it helps you, you know, when you hear that, we should gird up ourselves. Oh, wait a minute. You mean there are things that are going to come my way that could cause me to stumble? It's possible that years from now I could be wounded somewhere, licking my wounds somewhere, and I'm not in fellowship. I'm not following the Lord. That could happen. And offenses will come. It's helpful for us to know that and be prepared. The world is full of a stumble, stumbling blocks and opportunities to be offended. There are influences, there are uh, websites, there are philosophies, there are liberal churches, there is legalism, there is people who are insensitive, there is family, etc., etc. The list goes on. The primary offenders in this context, of course, is the Pharisees, who were, were false teachers. They were preventing people from coming to the knowledge of the truth. And Jesus had called them out on that several times uh, before. So he adds this warning. It is impossible that no offenses should come, and woe to him through whom they come. So the idea of stewardship and in relationships applies to us all. It's a sharp rebuke to the Pharisees as false teachers, but every one of us, uh, uh, need to be very careful when it comes to relationships. Paul addresses this subject in the book of Romans. It's in chapter 14, if we could step aside for a moment. You remember in that context, Paul is teaching of the subject of, is it okay to eat meat that has been offered to idols? Now, that's not a very uh, relevant subject for us this morning. Um, although when we were in India on the last trip, I realized it was very relevant for them. And when we had a couple of hours with the pastor's question and answers, that was one of the questions that came up about, is it okay to eat meat that's offered to idols? So we turned to 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, and we answered the question. And Paul in that passage shows that some Christians who were coming out of Judaism and had a very weak conscience struggled with the idea that they could eat meat that had been offered to idols. And others said, there's only one God, there are only idols, who care? Serve it up. They didn't have a problem with it. So the way that Paul addressed that is he says, listen, if you have the freedom to eat meat that's offered to idols, don't use it as a stumbling block to your brother. And if you don't have the liberty to eat that, don't judge your brother that does. Such wisdom, such practical wisdom for church fellowship, because we will also have areas that we differ in convictions. It could be in the areas of how we dress, or ways that we behave, or what music we listen to. For some, that's okay. For others, oh no. And we are different. And grace in the center allows us to enjoy fellowship. I'm not your judge. And I'm also not putting a stumbling block before you. So I'll read Romans uh, 14 in verse 3. He says, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And again, you could, you could apply this to so many different things. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or false. 
And the next verse says, let every man be persuaded in his own mind. And I'm not to enforce my convictions over you and to be a judge or a stumbling block, but we all live and walk before God and we have grace for one another. He picks it up again in verse 12 and he says, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather be sure not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. And that's the word scandalon, not to put an offense or a stumbling block in our brother's way. And what is the, the main issue in, in, this, uh, in this church life and in between these two different types of believers? It is love. If I love, I am not your judge. I, I don't put a stumbling block for you. And John picks this up in 1 John 2.10, where he says, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So this applies to a lot of different issues, especially, of course, to false teachers and abusive leaders. Imagine being a leader or a teacher and you are manipulating or controlling and you are offending believers and they are stumbling in the way and you cause them to fall. So Jesus says, woe to him. Let's go back. Woe to him through whom those offenses come. Woe to him. And we say, okay, really? Okay, how serious is it exactly? So Jesus goes on to say, and this is one of those, another one of those cases where Jesus is purposely using extreme language to make a point. It's a hyperbole where he is using an exaggeration, a shocking exaggeration to punch home the point. It's not to be taken literally, but it is to make the point, and he does so very well. He says it is better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. In Matthew 18, which is a, parable pas a parallel passage to this, he identifies the little ones as those who believe in him. Speaking about believers, especially, of course, young believers, but all believers. Imagine how serious that is in light of heaven if you would cause someone to stumble or fall away or not get saved even uh, because of your relationship or carelessness, whatever it might be. We see that in the world and we also see it in churches. Have you ever heard about anyone getting hurt in a church? Have you ever heard about anyone or perhaps you have been offended in church. Someone hurt you, someone did something, and it hurt you. Oh, oh. You felt like you were limping out of the church that day, and you struggled, and maybe you, you decided you couldn't go back, or whatever it might be. Uh, that can happen. It seems, I, I find it so hard to reconcile it if there is a church and many people are getting hurt because of that church, or the leaders, there is something desperately wrong with that picture, but it happens. So he says, it's better for them that a millstone 
And this is a huge circular rock with a hole in the middle where they would pour in the grain. It sat on top of another rock and the animals were, the ox would be harnessed in and it would go around and it would grind the grain. And that huge millstone is used in this uh, verse here. It's better it would be tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. And you say, gosh, that is so shocking. I am uncomfortable listening to that. And that's the point. We should be. That's the point. He's saying it's better that you would actually die right now than you would continue to offend my little ones because there are consequences for that uh, you know, on the other side of the grave. James 3.1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. So then he goes on to say, take heed to yourselves. Now this is important. Let's lay this to our hearts. He says that about stumbling blocks and being careful. And then he says, take heed to yourselves in two ways. Number one, take heed to yourself that you do not offend a brother, that you do not put a stumbling block in, in the way of your brother. And number two, that you are not offended by a brother. Take heed to yourselves. Be aware. Be on guard. That's what it's saying. Offenses uh, will come. But I don't want to be the one that brings them. And I don't want to be the one that falls and stumbles and falls away because of them. I know in the church, on occasion, someone has come to me and says, oh, you know what? What this person said to me or what this person did to me really hurt me. What do you say about that? I, I have learned to say, I wish I could say to you that that will never happen again, but it probably will. Right? I can't speak for everyone in the church. And sometimes there may be moments or attitudes of insensitivity or judgment or people have certain traditions or ideas and they speak and, oh, it offends and it can happen. But we must give grace for one another. That's how the fellowship works. You give me grace, and I give you grace, and we, and we, we do the best we can by God's Spirit in us. Some people say, oh, I'm, I'm never going to go to church again. Or, I'm never going to go to that church again. Well, if you're not careful you'll find yourself going to a lot of different churches trying to find a place because offenses will come. There is friction. We are human beings and we are sinners and it may happen. We hope not. We, we have the sweet fellowship and unity and we thank God for it. But it is part of life and even part of our Christian journey. So then he goes on, take heed to yourselves and he says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Now, we have to be careful with this. This isn't a license to go around rebuking people. Let's see what it says. Rebuke means a clear, direct word showing your disapproval for a word or an action. It is a straight charge or to admonish. But notice it says, if your brother sins against you. It's not if they sin against others. I can't believe that. I'm going to go and rebuke him. No, it's not about you. 
It's only if they sin against you, it says. I'm not to be a busybody in the church or get involved in other people's affairs or relationships. If it affects the church, then you can speak to the elders and the elders will prayerfully and carefully uh, deal with it as need be. But if it's against you, you can go to that brother or sister, probably brother, and you can speak directly to them in love, not in anger, not in reaction, with the heart to reconcile. It's not about, I'm just going to go, I'm going to let him know what I think about him. I'm going to let him have it. And you walk away, I am so good, I told him. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to win your brother. Galatians 6.2 speaks about restoration in a spirit of gentleness. You can have a straight, sharp word, but also have a spirit of gentleness and have grace towards them. And then it says, if he repents, forgive him. And that's the hope and the prayer. I go, and if I have that word, I must also be ready to forgive. The purpose is reconciliation and forgiveness. I'm not going to go and tell the person and hold a grudge and be bitter and critical in my heart if they have repented and they have expressed their sorrow for it. So if it's a legal matter, of course, then the person, then it's a different level and you must face the consequences for breaking the laws of the land and you must, must be held account for that. You can forgive a person but they may still end up uh, facing the consequences of it. So, Matthew, in Matthew's parallel account, again in Matthew 18, he gives the process uh, for, for this in the church, church discipline. He says again, moreover, if your brother sins against you, there it is, brother, not sister. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's a good, good word of advice, isn't it? I'm not telling this person, this person, this person, this person. I want to go to that person alone, and I want to speak to them about the issue between me and them alone, it says. And if he hears you, you have gained a brother. Isn't that beautiful? But if he will not hear you take one or two more with you, that by the mouth or two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So in the case where you can't reconcile and the person doesn't hear and is not corrected, you could go with another two people. Uh, it should be mature believers, perhaps elders would be a safe recommendation, but be careful who you, who you would choose, but you would go to them. And again, the goal is for peace and reconciliation. Uh, in the church. If they do not hear then, it's escalated even further for the sake of the unity of the church. Let's go back to Luke 17. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now that needs a bit of consideration, doesn't it? The first thing you think of is, isn't that, aren't people going to abuse that? They're just going to keep offending me and then come back and say, I repent and offend me and I repent. And aren't they going to abuse my, my patience and my grace and my mercy? Jesus says seven times. Now, for the Jews to forgive three times was considered honorable. And on the third time, okay, that's it. But Jesus takes it up a level and he says seven times. 
And again, in the parallel passage, Peter goes up to him and he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, I tell you seven, 70 times seven. What? 400, shall I forgive my brother 490 times? No, I tell you seven times 404. You know, the point is not the number. The point is this attitude of unlimited mercy expressed towards the brother. Now, there are three points that we could mention from this. First of all, what about if the person keeps hurting me or offending me and I keep forgiving? What do I do with that type of situation? Well, to forgive doesn't mean that you have to continue subjecting yourself to that relationship. Someone might say, oh, you're not, you're, you haven't seen them. Haven't you forgiven them? You say, no, no, I, I forgive them. But that doesn't mean I need to subject my life and heart to that type of uh, hurtful behavior, etc. right? Forgiveness and reconciliation are, 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 you know, there's a distinction we could make there. But we are called to forgive. This is the second point. We are not to harbor it in our hearts. It is unhealthy. We actually end up becoming the victim of unforgiveness, and we are resentful and we are bitter, and there is a wound that can be pressed, and I, I, am, I am a victim of it. But forgiveness, where I relinquish the right to judge, and I give that to God, and there is a freedom that takes place, and I am not that person's judge anymore, but I forgive. And the last point that should surface from this verse is who can do that? Wow. Seven times, 70 times seven. They keep, who can do that should be the question that surf, surfaces. Once maybe is a challenge, right? Our forgiveness is limited and it may take some time for us to heal, but we certainly need God's spirit and his work in our own heart and lives to express this type of mercy and forgiveness. This is not natural. So this is why in verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Isn't that beautiful? They hear it and they say, this is what they say. Okay, increase our faith because we're not there yet. We don't have the capacity to do that. These were the apostles those who would be the foundation of the early church, those who would inspire, be inspired to write the scriptures, etc., lead the church, and they said, increase our faith. We are certainly not there. They saw the limits of their own natural man, the limits of mercy and love and grace in, in that sense, and they asked for more. And we can, that's a good prayer, we can pray that also. Lord, increase our faith, enlarge our coast, enlarge our hearts, but one might say, oh, yeah, yeah, when, when you increase my faith, then I'll forgive. I'm not there yet. One day when God increases my faith, then I'll forgive. So Jesus helps with that by saying in verse 6, if you have faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And again, it's, not, it's, 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 it's figurative here. I mean, the ish, don't get on a plane and go to Israel and find a mulberry tree. In Jesus' name, that's not what it's saying. 
But a mulberry tree, this deeply rooted tree that you could not pull up, that's the point. It's, it's giving a picture of something that is impossible to do. You cannot pull up the tree by the roots. He's saying you cannot do it. It's impossible. But by faith, by faith, faith which engages the very person and provision of God in my life, through God it is possible. And people might say, oh, the Christian life, it, it's hard. And we would say, no, it's impossible. But through Christ, this is the beauty, this is the miracle, this is the wonder that we are fallen, sinful human beings who, who yes, we could offend and get offended, but when there is spiritual life and the Holy Spirit bearing fruit through our life, there is something different that, that is expressed, and it is Christ in us and through us and one to another. And that's the beauty of ministry and fellowship, and we, we taste that in our church life. We're so thankful for it. One writer said, it's not about great faith in God. It's about faith in a great God. It's not about how much faith I have. It's what is that faith in that I am having my faith in God. Lord, I cannot forgive, and I'm sure we've all been in that place. But we look to him, we trust, we pray, we wait, and God is able. We could say, Lord, how could I best serve you? How could I best represent you in this world? He would say in the context of this passage, forgive. Be one who forgives. Be one who loves. Be one who gives grace. Be one who prays for your enemies, etc. And we would say, oh, Lord, I can't do that. And he would say, okay, great, that's where we start. You can't do that. Christianity is not about a moral model that I imitate or I live up to. It's about a yielded life to the Spirit of God who is in us. And he bears through, fruit through us. So to end, he gives this parable that we'll finish with about a servant, right? He's saying, listen, you want to represent me? You want to serve me? This is how you do it, to forgive, to love, etc. And he says, which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Right? The master's there, the servant's him working in the field all day. He comes in, and the master doesn't say, oh, oh, let me get that for you. Oh, thank you. Take a seat. I'll feed you. No, the servant has done what he is supposed to do. And the master is more likely to say in verse 8, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink. He doesn't thank the servant. Look, verse 9. There it is, verse 9. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. It's expected. That's what the relationship is. And then he gives the application. This is the last verse, verse 10. So likewise you. This is the conclusion, the application. Jesus says, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. 
In other words, it's my privilege to serve. I, I can't believe I get to do this. And you don't say that, of course, unless we are living in the grace economy, unless we have the Spirit of God, etc., and we, t- we taste his life. And we are loved by him and forgiven by him and served by him. And then we say, what a privilege that I could serve him by serving others. What a privilege that I could forgive others as he has forgiven me. What a privilege that I could represent him in this world. Not by the power of my flesh, I cannot do that. But by being yielded uh, to him. That's what the doulos servant would say. What a privilege to serve. And Jesus, of course, the, the greatest doulos servant of all, the voluntary servant, motivated by love, not my will, but your will be done. It's a reasonable service in the light of such grace and love, such great salvation. It's our reasonable service that we would serve him and we would serve him with joy. I'll read to you Romans 12, verse 1, as we close. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. One one definition of the doulos servant, it's one whose will has been consumed by the will of another. And he says, oh, to do the master's will, this is my chief joy and privilege. It's simply our duty, but also our privilege. So with a little faith in a great God, we ask him, we trust him, that through us we could have ministry of love, grace, and mercy to others. That we wouldn't be a stumbling block, but we would be someone who is a blessing and a help to others on their journey of faith. Amen? So Father, we thank you for this time in the Word together. We thank you for these thoughts that we could consider and all we do ask and pray, you would, you would help these things be applied afresh to our lives. We know, we, know what, what, we know the difference between the flesh and the spirit. We taste it in our own experience. We know that your spirit, you convict us. You show us or help us learn what it means to die to ourselves, to take up our cross, to be filled with your spirit and to minister in the life of Christ. We pray perhaps there is someone here this morning or listening online. If you are not sure of your salvation, here is the good news that God so loved the world he gave his son that whoever would believe in him, there it is, believe. It's not about what you do, it's about believing. You believe in him that your faith is not in what you do for him, but it's what he has done for you. That he died on the cross, he paid for your sin, he offers the free gift of salvation. And in your heart right now, in this prayer, say, Lord, I receive that gift of salvation today. 
Jesus, come into my life and be my Savior. I ask and pray and bless me on the beginning of my spiritual journey with you. And we pray you'd lay this to all of our hearts uh, here today. Bless this time now of worship and fellowship to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.